World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. China reported relatively impressive economic growth since its reopening. Or so it seems. If you look a little closer, the Asian giant's post-pandemic comeback isn't going quite as well as many expected. And there's a lot of contraband making its way into Iran despite the mullah's prohibition on goods they deem luxurious or unnecessary. We meet a smuggler who's shifting tons, literal tons, of pianos into the country. But first... On June 13th, Donald Trump became the first former American president ever to receive a federal indictment. Facing charges related to his alleged mishandling of classified documents, he was arraigned at a court in Miami in what was a historic moment for the country. Yesterday, history was made again. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. In Washington, Independent Special Counsel Jack Smith added to the growing list of charges against Mr. Trump, accusing him of violating three federal laws. And while the former president is now mired in several legal cases, these charges look to be the gravest yet. Nevertheless, Trump loyalists, including his former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, have rushed to his defense. There's stuff in here that I know is untrue. I'm deeply disappointed. I thought I was dealing with professionals. What they did here is an abomination that will live in history. And despite the serious charges, his popularity amongst Republican voters seems buoyant as the race for the party's presidential nomination speeds up. This case is unprecedented. Daniel Franklin is The Economist's deputy U.S. editor. It's by far the most significant of all the charges that Donald Trump is facing. It's one that goes to the very heart of American democracy because it accuses him of seeking to overturn the democratic process in America. So what does the indictment say exactly? What does it tell us? Well, the indictment gives a very damning picture of abuse of power. The tone is set right at the beginning. It says that despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. And so for more than two months following the election on November the 3rd, 2020, he spread lies that there had been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won. Now, interestingly, what the indictment does not do 
is accused the president of inciting the insurrection on January the 6th at the Capitol. That's a matter of free speech. That's not what's at issue here. What is at issue is a two-month-long campaign that it alleges in great detail, 45 pages of indictment, that was orchestrated by President Trump while in office with the help of a a number of co-conspirators who are not named, but uh, who may come into play as this case moves forward. Now, Daniel, we've spoken on the show before about the different ongoing cases against Mr. Trump. Where does this one fit in with the others? They're all fairly significant, but this is really of a different order because it goes to the very heart of the democratic process, the peaceful, orderly transfer of the will of the electorate, the transfer of power. And by accusing the president of trying to stop this very basic workings of democracy, it's an extremely serious charge and one that is going to be very much in the forefront in the run-up to the next election in 2024. Uh, That's not to say that the other charges are insignificant, far from it. For example, the other case that uh, this uh, special prosecutor is involved in, the case about the mishandling of documents at Mar-a-Lago after the uh, president had left office, that's a serious matter. And just recently, Further charges relating to obstruction of justice were added to that. So that's significant jeopardy for Mr. Trump. However, a case that involves the fundamental workings of democracy while the president was in office, seeking to remain in power and thwarting the will of the American electorate, that's of a different order of magnitude. It should be noted that throughout all his legal trouble, Donald Trump has denied wrongdoing throughout And how has Mr. Trump reacted to this latest indictment? Well, it's interesting that the impending indictment was announced by none other than Mr. Trump, and he's using it very much to drum up support among his base, trying to turn the tables against his accusers and saying that far from him subverting democracy, it's they who are trying to act against a man who is the front runner for the Republican nomination and a very serious contender to regain office and to go back into the White House. So he's saying it's an attack on democracy. This is all part of an enormous witch hunt, the weaponization of the Justice Department. And extraordinarily enough, this is working. This is actually strengthening his support among his Republican base. Give us a sense of how far this could all go. Could Donald Trump be facing a prison sentence? He could face a prison sentence, and indeed, if he was convicted, that would very likely be the outcome. But of course, it all gets intermeshed and complicated by the looming election. So it's very unlikely that all the processes of charges and appeals would be completed by the time the election happens. It will play into the campaign. It'll be a sort of ongoing drama as the campaign is happening. But if Donald Trump gets back into the White House, he will have immunity for the period that he's in office, so everything will get put on hold. So it is, as one of his rivals for the Republican nomination said the other day at an event in Iowa, it is a way of keeping him out of jail, at least for the time that that he is in office. So in short, this wouldn't prevent him from running next year? No, absolutely not. Even if he was in prison, there's nothing constitutionally to stop somebody running for office. And it is actually strengthening his support among his Republican 
primary electorate. He's way, way ahead in the polls. Latest polls suggested that actually his support is stronger than all the other dozen or so candidates put together. So there's still a long way to go. The first voting isn't until January, but nevertheless, that's an incredibly commanding lead. I don't think anybody's ever had that sort of lead at this stage and lost it. He's extremely likely now to be the Republican nominee. And once he's the nominee, he has every chance in what looks like being a very competitive election to actually win the presidency back again. The latest polls show that it's really neck and neck between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And what about the reaction in the Republican Party? Do you expect there to be much criticism of Trump in light of these new charges? You know, it's interesting that if you look at the dynamics of the campaign so far, the Republican Party, the Republican rivals to Donald Trump have by and large been extremely reluctant to tackle this head on and to accuse him of having done anything illegal. On the contrary, they tend to echo the line about alleged abuse of the system by the Biden administration and by the Biden Justice Department. So there is very little actual attack on Donald Trump directly, frontally, by rivals such as Ron DeSantis. It's all rather oblique. And where somebody does take him head on, he tends to get booed off the stage. So at the moment, anyway, everything from the Republican base to the Republican rival candidates to the way that this is showing up in the polls and not least serving as a fundraising engine for Donald Trump, everything seems to support the dynamic of this actually helping him in his campaign to be the Republican nominee. And so, Daniel, what comes next? Well, what comes next will be the court charges, whether or not Donald Trump appears remains to be seen. And then there will be a date set for a trial and people will be looking very closely at how that will intersect with the primary campaign or the primary voting schedule and indeed with all the other trials that Donald Trump is going to face. So his lawyers certainly are going to be very busy people in the coming year. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Since China's great reopening in January, there have been high expectations for a rip-roaring economic recovery. But while restaurant owners and shopkeepers are better off than during harsh COVID lockdowns, all is not well in Beijing. We had a lot of people calling for a China boom this year. That has clearly not happened. Faltering growth, soaring youth unemployment rates, an economy on the brink of deflation. China's economy is running out of steam as growth slowed from two point... In July, factory activity in the country fell for a fourth consecutive month. Growth is stuttering and China is now flirting with deflation. The Communist Party's ruling Politburo has described the economic recovery as tortuous, 
and promised precise and forceful measures to boost growth. 制定出台公平竞争审查条例，力争通过扎实举措，切实为民营经济发展创造更好的环境。On Monday, officials unveiled a long list of piecemeal measures to make shopping easier and cheaper. But is that enough? And just how much trouble is China really in? So everyone this year has been looking forward to China's economic reopening. It was hoped this would provide a welcome boost to the global economy. And China recently released the latest economic figures. Simon Cox is our China economics editor. And on the face of it, they look pretty strong. Growth was above six percent compared with last year. But that figure is a little bit misleading because if you remember last year. China's economy was mired in pandemic-related lockdowns, with cities like Shanghai shut down. And so, compared with last year, the economy looks okay. But、uh, last year is a very sort of weak base with which to compare it. If you look at China's economy in the spring compared with earlier in the year, growth has actually been pretty slow. It grew by only 0.8 percent compared with the first quarter. That suggests that the reopening is much less vigorous than we'd previously hoped. And so, what's going on here? What's the whole picture? Yeah, so you can unpack that broad GDP figure and look at what's going on under the hood, if you like. And there were two things that I thought were particularly striking. One is exports. We knew that exports were going to be weak this year because the global economy is pretty weak, but they declined, I think, faster than many of us had expected. And the other big issue is the property market. And you know, I'm sure regular listeners will know that China's property market is hugely important to the economy. It's had this sort of epic boom that all came to a miserable end last year, both because of COVID and because of regulatory tightening. And this year, we'd hoped for a modest rebound. We didn't want to go back to the speculative excesses of the past, but we certainly didn't want a repeat of 2022. And early in the year, things looked pretty good. Sales seemed to be picking up, but more recently, in recent months,、uh, they've plummeted again. There was also、uh, another more obscure, but I think quite interesting. Feature of the data, which is, you know, whenever we look at growth, we look at the increase in stuff that the economy produces, and also the increase in prices. And economists like to strip out the effect of that increase in prices, so they adjust for inflation. And you know, typically, after you adjust for inflation, growth is slower than it looks if you include inflation. In China, in the most recent figures, the opposite happened. So, if you adjust the figure for inflation, it actually looks better than it did before the adjustment. And what's that telling us? Well, that's telling us that prices in China are falling, and that's a concerning sign. In a period of recovery, you'd expect prices to be reasonably strong, and it suggests perhaps that demand is weak, and that some of this deflationary psychology、uh, might be beginning to creep in. And what does this mean for consumers? So, if deflation takes hold, so if the prices of the goods In the shops are falling, and you're expecting them to continue falling, then you can have the phenomenon where consumers delay purchases because they think they'll get them cheaper later on. We're not quite at that point yet、uh, in China. If you look just narrowly at consumer prices, they're flat rather than falling. But we could get there, especially if、uh, confidence remains weak and the government doesn't do enough to revive the economy. And Simon, what's driving this weakness in prices? Well, some of it. Is international developments, global commodity prices falling? But I think the problem is perhaps deeper than that because GDP should take that into account. And so, if the GDP figures show prices falling, that's really prices of goods made in China, not international commodities imported by China. So that's a real concern. 
the other possibility is that the statisticians have just got their sums a bit wrong. None of these things are easy to measure. So we should probably uh, reserve judgment, but it's concerning either way. The statistics coming out of China, how reliable do you think that they are? So I tend to be somewhat forgiving. Uh, They have a very bad reputation. And interestingly, they have quite a bad reputation within China itself uh, among the public. There was an interesting exchange recently in the Chinese media where a reporter said to one of the chief statisticians in China, you know, there's a temperature difference. She said there's a temperature difference uh, between people's feelings about the economy and what the macro data are saying. And the statistician said, well, you know, the macro data is more comprehensive, therefore more reliable. And this provoked a reaction amongst netizens and other online commentators who said, if the statisticians tell you you're okay, then you should adjust your feelings accordingly. So I think there is this sort of slightly cynical uh, attitude towards many of the statistics coming out of China. But do you think that the authorities actually understand that there might be a problem? So I think they're beginning to. They're quite reluctant to do big stimulus. As I mentioned, you know, China has had speculative excesses in the past. And in particular, local governments have overspent and lacked financial discipline. And also the property market tends to generate a momentum of its own, can get a little bit out of hand. And they don't want to do anything to encourage that financial indiscipline or encourage that property speculation. So they've been trying to sit on their hands. But things are getting bleak enough that I think they're going to have to do more. They'll probably have to cut interest rates further. They've been making more encouraging conciliatory noises towards the private sector, saying, you know, we're listening to your concerns, we value you, we'll try to make life easier for you. So there's been a bit of a a charm offensive. What we haven't really had yet, though, is a detailed, substantive fiscal stimulus plan in which central government sort of puts its money where its mouth is and says, we're going to provide more money to households or we're going to invest more in infrastructure. And that's what you might ultimately need in order to get China through this weak patch. And Simon, lastly, what do you make of this lack of urgency? So it's understandable. They have overstimulated in the past. They now have a broader set of goals. You know, China's not myopically focused on growth at all costs. It also worries about the environment. It worries about building a more resilient, self-reliant economy that can counter the geopolitical pressures that China's under. They worry also about what kind of growth they're getting. They want more advanced manufacturing. They're somewhat less interested in things like e-commerce. So there are a number of constraints that might lead to a somewhat slow-moving policy response. But the problem with economies, and certainly deflation and economic weakness, is it can feed on itself. So if you wait too long, you end up having to do more than you might have had to do if you'd acted earlier. So this reluctance to stimulate might paradoxically result in them having to stimulate more than they might otherwise have done. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Customs officials in Iran have a long list of items they're not supposed to let into the country. Foreign-made sunglasses, laptops, mobile phones, all kinds of things that they deem to be luxury or non-essential goods. So, obviously, trade in that stuff has gone underground, an estimated 20 to 25 billion dollars worth of goods every year. But some things are easier to get across the border than others. Hassan is a smuggler. 
His real name is not Hassan, obviously we've changed his name. He used to work in international business relations and then his job got axed when Donald Trump unilaterally reimposed sanctions on Iran in 2015. So he tried to take what he knew, which is international trade, and put it into something that he felt would be profitable, which it turns out is smuggling. Edmund Bauer writes about the Middle East for The Economist. And it's not just contraband goods that people in the West might associate smuggling with. And Hassan himself, he's smuggling pianos. Piano seems like a particularly difficult thing to move across a border. Why not something you can stick in your pocket? Right. Well, I mean, that's what makes it interesting, I think, because iPhones, designer sunglasses, these kinds of things are being smuggled in and you can kind of imagine how they get in, but he's moving big pianos. And he's bringing them in in bulk. So he's moving as much as 40 shipping containers worth of pianos. In fact, he's picking up a lot of used pianos in East Asia just because he's offering people a few bucks and is coming around their house to pick them up because he knows that once he gets it into Iran, he can turn it for a much bigger profit. So Hassan moves pianos from East Asia to a warehouse in the UAE and then a separate company takes the pianos over from the UAE to Iran, to Bandar Abbas or one of the other major ports. So it's not like they're being snuck in in pickup trucks across the border and it's not like they're unloading big shipments of pianos in the dead of night. Like some of these ships have 40 containers worth of pianos on them. So the people who are working the ports to some extent know what's going on. And there's reason to think that even far up the chain, people are taking a cut of this illicit trade. Even the company that moves the pianos over has to pay bribes. But when they do so, it's given paperwork. They, they put it down as musical instrument parts rather than musical instruments. And once he gets in, he can ship them by lorry up to Tehran and they could go for $6,000 each. And some of these pianos he's getting for 50 bucks secondhand in East Asia. So there's money to be made. So why is it that pianos in particular are banned in the first place? Well, in 2021, musical instruments were among a load of imports that were banned by the authorities. And ostensibly, according to some, this is harking back to the religious fundamental roots of the Islamic Republic when Western instruments were banned. But we might be overstating the religious motivation for it just because it seems to be more out of economic motivations that Iran, which is under heavy sanctions, has a balance of payments crisis whereby they are in danger of importing more than they're able to export. So even before musical instruments were banned in 2021, there were high tariffs on musical instruments coming in. And it seems like it's more of an attempt to stop dollars leaving the country at a higher rate than they're coming in. So I'm a little unclear here. How does uh, crimping down on the shipment of pianos deal with a much wider balance of payments issue? Iran, in theory, is a very rich country. It's rich in resources, it's got a lot of oil. But until very recently, until Russia invaded Ukraine, Iran was the country under the highest amount of sanctions anywhere in the world, even compared to North Korea. So the sanctions on Iran have led to other crises within the country, inflation being a huge one. Inflation hit 43% at the last count last month. And there's a dollar shortage, there's a currency crisis. And one of the ways of combating this in the eyes of the government is to reduce expensive imports on items that they can do without. So pianos being just one example. 
But if tens of shipping containers worth of pianos and presumably lots of other luxury or unnecessary items are getting across the border, this doesn't sound like the most efficient way to deal with the problems that Iran has. Well, the market doesn't go away just because the government wills it to. There are still people in Iran who want to play the piano, who want expensive new clothes, who want new iPhones and things like this. I mean, this isn't the majority of the country, as you can imagine. This is a minority of people who are particularly wealthy and have money to spend on $6,000 pianos. It dovetails quite closely with the people who are at the centre of the regime as well. There is this elite, which for the most part implements these policies, who are also the people who are most likely to be taking advantage of illicit imports. And yeah, it's a constant complaint amongst Iranians that their country is under the control of an elite who lives very differently to the majority of the country. So even though there are all of these economic problems going on, there are still people with money to spend. Edmund, thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in with our current deal, a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. to write for work want to improve bolster your skills with economist education six-week online course you'll explore the craft of writing and learn from the economist editors how to engage and persuade whether it's vibrant memos pithy social media posts or storytelling with data and as a listener enjoy a 15 percent discount with the code writing so sign up now at economist.com forward slash business writing 